here. Mark chapter 11, if you've got your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 11, and uh, we're going to go through the the first uh, 11 verses. This particular section in Mark opens up um, the final section in his book. So he's written um, this whole gospel, and this particular section uh, takes up a third of his gospel. So it's a significant amount of time spent on a very short period of time. Ultimately, it's pretty much the last seven days of Jesus' life. So this is seven days leading up to uh, Jesus' death on the cross and uh, then his resurrection. And so Mark decides to spend a whole big chunk of time on this because he thinks it's really important. Some call it the Passion um, because this is where Jesus is heading into uh, his, his final post, his final mission uh, on the earth uh, to open up this wonderful new kingdom. So it's the beginning of Passover week. Passover week is where they remembered uh, everything that happened back in Egypt. So this annual festival that happened all the way through history uh, was continuing to happen um, in this particular time as well. It's where they remembered where God uh, and the angel of death passed over the houses of Israel who obeyed God and put the blood on their doorpost. And their firstborn son was not killed. Um, and, uh, and everyone else in Egypt... Uh, suffered the judgment of God because of Pharaoh's uh, hard-heartedness, ultimately, and his stiff-neckedness. If that's even a word. I don't even know if that's a word, stiff-neckedness. Anyway, big celebration because God saved the people. It was a wonderful time and people were well and truly in the spirit of, yes, God saved us and he's still saving us. But there's still trouble. There's still trouble about because in the time, uh, the Romans were particularly oppressing the Jews. And it was a nasty time uh, to be a Jew um, and to be one of God's people. And so it gives you a bit of an understanding of what was going on about the time. The second thing I'd like to note before we just jump in and read it is that uh, Jesus was going into this particular, <clears throat> particular section um, knowing exactly what was coming. Uh, being God, he knew the plan that his father had for him. Uh, and so he didn't, he didn't sort of sheepishly go in. He didn't sort of hold back and, uh, and fearfully try to make a bit of another plan to be able to see if he could work out something different. He knew that what he was about to enter into was pretty much his death. Um, and so <clears throat> after all the time right throughout the gospel, particularly the gospel of Mark, there's this, been this secrecy going on about Jesus and his full identity. And Jesus is about to just open things up and let people know truly who he really is. Um, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Let's have a a quick read of that. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. I'm just going to pause and make a few comments as we go. Um, So Jesus had recently been to this place. The, uh, The raising of Lazarus. Lazarus. From death. So you can understand, if you were in that particular city, that particular village, you can understand there'd be some popularity around this guy, Jesus, because they just witnessed this incredible miracle. A man was dead and now he's actually alive. Four days after he was dead, Jesus comes along and brings him back to life. That's insane, right? And you can understand why people were getting a little bit excited because this same man was coming back into their village. So uh, that, was, that was what was going on around. John actually suggests that it's the same crowd who watched the Jesus raise Lazarus from death to life uh, that was actually hanging around here as well. Keep reading. Um, 
So it continues on. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and it will set and we'll send it back here immediately. Now pause and think here, right? You just do a little bit of thinking here and go, okay, Jesus is over in another village and he's telling his boys, and we don't know who they are, he's telling his boys to go in and basically take a colt, take a donkey and bring it back to him. And if anyone asks, all they're going to say is the Lord has need of it and they'll let it go. That's pretty insane, right? You can imagine someone walking down into Avis and, uh, and trying to find out a piece of um, transport for their, whoever the important person is. They're just like, yep, just grab the keys, go, put the keys in the car, start it up and out they go. And the people at Avis going, what are you doing? Oh, the Lord needs it. Now, like, okay, see you later. <laughs> like this is a weird sort of situation, isn't it? A, that it's a donkey. B, that uh, Jesus is telling him just to go and do this stuff. But I think... Uh, what it actually is showing that Jesus is saying, I'm more than just a man. I'm actually God here. Not that he hasn't shown that already, but people were pretty slow to get it, all right? People were pretty slow to get that Jesus is actually God, that he's actually the Son of God, uh, and to understand his mission. He could have pre-planned it. Jesus, it's possible that he could have pre-planned going into that village. Of, you know, They'd been through that village a few times before. Um, and he could have gone and actually worked it out with the owner and said, my boys are coming if anyone asks, and said everything like that. That is a little difficult to believe, given that there was questions straight away about it anyway. Um, so maybe he did, but I reckon it's cooler that he didn't, right? And he just shows that he's God and he knows stuff before it happens. Um, so I'm going with the fact that he, he, uh, he knew it before it happened. Um, he knew... He knew that, uh, that, that there'd be people there. And the second thing is that the, the people were just going to let them go. Like that answer was sufficient for those people querying. So Jesus is like, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to say. And in those exact words, their queries will be done. They'll be like, okay, yep, no worries. You can take that donkey, no worries at all. Um, I find it amazing that Jesus can do that. Um, and... Also, the disciples just went and got on with the job. Keep going. It was usual for a king uh, at this point too, it was usual for a king to commandeer a beast um, and to actually make it his own. And it, it had to be a beast that hadn't been ridden before because that would be fit for a king, right? And so Jesus again is actually starting to demonstrate that he's a king. He's not just a man. He's not just God, which is enough as it is, but he's actually the king. Um, because he's actually going to start riding in on a donkey that's never been ridden before. Um, He's not a usual king though, right? Because a king would usually commandeer an animal and not give it back because no one else could ride that animal because the king had ridden it. That animal was far too valuable now. And so he's the king but not a usual king because he then says, I'm just going to bring it back to you and you can keep using your donkey. Keep going, verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, Surprise, surprise, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. <clears throat> and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. 
and those who went before. You're getting this procession idea. Like there's people walking before him, people walking after him, and they're all cheering and they're all shouting. So this doesn't do it justice. One person reading this doesn't do it justice because there's a lot of noise going on right now. All right, People are screaming out this stuff. Here's what they're shouting. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Notice a couple of things there. They didn't say, Hosanna, the Lord has come as the rescuer. That would have been significant because they already would have known that he was actually the Messiah who was coming to save them. And at that point, that would have stirred up enough interest from all the political leaders to actually arrest him and everything would have happened too early. But instead, for whatever reason, they were, they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So A, they didn't understand it. B, I think it's just Jesus' good timing. That, that, uh, and, and God's good timing that they didn't actually reveal his full identity right then. Blessed is the coming kingdom, kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What they were expecting was a king to come and take out the Romans so that they could rise again as a nation and be a healthy nation once again. So they were really excited. They were really pumped about this guy Jesus coming and doing more cool stuff. Not only has he raised a dead guy, but he's actually going to take us on and lead us into victory so that we can be a nation again without oppression and without these wicked Romans doing all that they're going to do to us. You get in the picture. You're all, you're all on, on the same page. The other funny thing here is that uh, in John, if you skip over to John, uh, John chapter 12 talks about when uh, they're all shouting this stuff and the trusty old Pharisees are all standing there as well. And what do the Pharisees say? Jesus, rebuke these people. They've got it wrong. So they're all trying to tell the people, hush down, quiet down. You've got it wrong. This guy isn't the king. He's not the real Messiah. He's just riding on a donkey. Uh, So they thought he was just a pilgrim doing his thing, coming to Passover week, having a big celebration. Um, And uh, and Jesus rebukes them, right? Because it's fitting to praise a king. It's fitting to praise and honor the Savior, the Messiah who they've been waiting for. And so Jesus rebukes them. And he says, if they don't cry out, the rocks will beat them to it. The rocks will cry out. And that's going to be, tough. That's going to be hard days when the rocks worship Jesus before the people do. That's going to be a mess. So I want to draw out three things from, uh, from this particular passage. Um, after all the comments, three things to draw out. Number one, Jesus is king of hearts. Number two, faith in Jesus leads to obedience and generosity. Number three, faith is loud and lasting. Because this comes right off blind Bartimaeus, right? And I think it comes off, the whole book really has been about people growing in their faith and connection in understanding who Jesus really is and trusting and believing that he does what he says he does. And that he said, believing that what he says is actually true. That if he truly is the saviour, that if he truly is the king, uh, they can trust him and believe him. And so this is where... uh, this whole idea of faith comes in. Jesus, number one, Jesus is king of hearts. Not the card, he's the king of hearts. He didn't come to save Jews from Rome. He didn't come with a national policy in hand. Uh, he didn't come with a, uh, with a political agenda to come and rescue a whole nation. 
He came to rescue all people. He came to save all people. Isn't that glorious? That's far more glorious than just a king who's going to come in and, uh, and do some nasty work on the enemy. <clears throat> He's king of hearts. He is in line of David, in the line of David and of his throne. Because if you trace back his family line, it is actually true that he came from David's family line. You can follow it all the way through. Uh, and so that promise was coming true, just not in the way that people expected. This is true of Jesus all the way along, isn't it? Jesus comes in unexpected ways, in weird sort of ways, and in humble ways, uh, yet he's the greatest king who's ever lived and who continues to live. The most glorious king comes in a stable as a tiny baby, tiny human being, completely and utterly dependent on its parents. And now he comes, the greatest king of all kings, riding on a donkey with a few coats over the top, uh, and, and a couple of disciples with him. Uh, he does get the honour and praise that is due, but that quickly shuts down by the end. So he's coming, but people still don't really get who he really is. And I reckon that you go through times in life where uh, even in your own faith, you actually don't believe that Jesus is as he says he is. And you wonder, is that, do you really mean that, Jesus? Are you really the king that would do that? in this situation are you really the king that would do that in my life right now jesus is king of hearts he came to bring dead souls to life and not just the jews but all people they couldn't see it we get the benefit of hindsight don't we but yet we're still in the same position so we can't empathize with them because jesus has promised that he's coming back again to finish his work to complete what he started here at the cross and at his resurrection Jesus is going to come and, uh, and complete the work of his kingdom one day. And so we wait in anticipation for this uh, coming king as well. Uh, he is king and he does dwell in people's hearts right now. But he is the king who's going to come back, not on a donkey this time, but on a white horse. How cool is that day going to be? It's a fearsome day. It's going to be a crazy, scary day. But it's going to be an amazing day for those who believe and trust in Jesus. <clears throat> He came to bring dead souls to life and yet we're still waiting just like these people were for his full return when he comes again. And he came knowing that there's something more precious than just a nation beating a nation. A nation being the most important nation. He came knowing that there's a greater war going on and that is a war for the human soul. For human souls. The war that the enemy, Satan, is trying to destroy people through nations through evil through all sorts of stuff and jesus can't I'm, I'm coming to get that i'm coming to get the eternal souls of people these nations are going to crumble this temple it's going to fall apart but the temple of people's hearts that's going to last forever and that's what i'm coming for <clears throat> second faith in jesus leads to obedience and generosity notice the disciples obedience it wasn't uh I mean, they probably had thoughts of going, this is a bit ridiculous. I, why do we have to go and get a donkey? I'll never forget. Um, yeah, I'll share it. I'll never forget one of the things that happened here at the school. And, um, and I was just coming into a new position um, of doing the sport coordination here at the school. And Mr. Brown 
decided it'd be a good idea to initiate me by uh, getting me to organise a rock pick down on the bottom ovals. So you can imagine uh, there's probably 200 kids, high school kids, uh, that I have to coordinate and the staff to walk down the bottom oval. This is just when it had been graded. And, uh, and get them motivated to, rock up, to pick up rocks on the bottom oval. And uh, to be honest, I struggled and I told him that. <laughs> but, uh, but I went and did it anyway. You probably get a bit of an idea that the, the disciples are going, really, Jesus, you're asking us to go and get a donkey from people we don't know. We're not even going to ask them. We're just going to untie it and walk out. But isn't that the sense that faith in Christ will always pay off and obedience to Christ will always pay off? <clears throat> even though it's going to seem absolutely insane and crazy. <clears throat> even though it's going to be something that you don't necessarily think is going to work out right. Trust that what Jesus says is going to be right. Trust that what he, the way he says to live life is going to be right. <clears throat> So the disciples' obedience, uh, spurred on by their faith and their trust, it was very simple at that time. He hadn't died for anyone's sins yet, uh, but they were going off the fact that he'd been trustworthy up till this point. So they went and obeyed him. So faith uh, in Jesus leads to obedience, and it also leads to generosity. They got the donkey, and they automatically they took off their coat and placed it over the donkey's back uh, in, a, in an act of generosity, saying, we want Jesus' ride to be comfortable. They didn't probably have to. But they also knew that this was a king. This was someone of far greater stature than, uh, than just a man. Uh, this was fa- someone of far greater stature than just the next door neighbor. This was the king. And so that was actually part of tradition. If you look back in, uh, in the book of Kings, uh, back in the Old Testament, this had already happened. This, this was something that was, I guess, tradition uh, in the fact that people put their coats over the, uh, the animal's back, but also that people's coats were being thrown all over the road as a sign of uh, we honour the king. He's coming back and, uh, and we want to lift him up. This guy is great. We want to, uh, we want to magnify him. Uh, not only that, but the palm branches as well. And so these little acts of generosity were spurred on by some hope, some faith that this was going to be the man that would save them. This was going to be the man uh, that would come through and, and rescue them. Um, Zechariah chapter 9 was actually being fulfilled. If you have your Bible there, uh, flick open to Zechariah chapter 9. <clears throat> and it's verse 9. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this was some 530 years before. So Zechariah wrote um, this book, 530 years before the book of Mark was written, right? And now it's actually being fulfilled. You can get that this is, going to, this is a momentous occasion. This isn't like a 100-year 100, 100 anniversary. This is like 500 years later. The people have known this, this prophecy and now it's coming true. And people are getting pretty excited about it. People are getting stoked and so they want to be generous. Finally, the king's here. I'm going to throw my coat out. I'm going to do everything I can to honour this man in the best way I know possible. And so their palm branches, their, uh, their, their coats are laying down on the ground. But not only that, uh, they're generous in their praise. They're generous in the way that their faith gets loud. It doesn't just uh, stay quiet, honour the king, worship the king. No, they're shouting it out. I had a look at um, the welcome home for the, um, for the cowboys. 
Anybody excited about that? <laughs> Cole, I know you are. Uh, so they come home to... Um, sorry, Ian, it's not AFL. It's not South. Anyway. Uh, they, they come home and there's thousands upon thousands of people and they are cheering and yelling. And uh, they are so stoked that these heroes were coming home. This is just a football game, people. All right? This is how excited they were, they were about these heroes, particularly Jonathan Thurston. Um, this captain, man, he's here, a hero now. He is like, he's amazing. He's just gone from this to outstanding, um, taking his team to the premiership. And, um, and the people got really excited. And the noise, from what I heard from all the reports, was deafening. At the airport, then back at the stadium, thousands upon thousands of people yelling and screaming out for their heroes because they'd come home. And you get the sense that this is what's going on here. Much more than just a winner of a football game, much more than the winner of the, uh, the local jousting comp, I don't know, whatever they had, the gladiators, all right? No, this is the king who's going to save them. This is the king who's going to come to rescue them. And so they were really excited. So their faith got loud, right? But interestingly, at this point in Mark, did you notice what happened before? Everyone's yelling and screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. So everything just went quiet. Everyone's gone. And Jesus walks into the temple alone, perhaps with a couple of disciples, and he just has a good look around. He just goes and checks it out. I read a couple of commentaries and, uh, as, as I was studying up for uh, the sermon, and this took me by surprise because I didn't actually notice it uh, the first time. One commentary actually talks about how Mark does this deliberately. Other Gospels actually go really all out on this whole triumphant entry of Jesus, right? So they, they tell the story in even much more detail than what uh, Mark tells it. But Mark deliberately keeps it condensed for some reason. And this is why they suggest he does it, and I probably agree with them. Mark helps us hear about the distinction between enthusiasm and truth and between group spirit and individual perception. Group spirit and movement can hold us in the initial period of belief and can sustain us during the difficult times, but it's no substitute for individual understanding and commitment. As such, group spirit can prevent us from making our own discoveries and can hinder the truth from reaching the deepest areas of our personality. This is why I entitled this last point, Faith in Jesus is Loud, because faith actually happens in the loud, the vocal, the out there, the great experiences, um, the, when everybody's together and celebrating and worshipping Jesus together, you get a sense, you get drawn up into it. But then faith actually has to last outside of that. Faith continues to go on into the day by day, the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday, the, uh, the Thursday when your kids don't sleep at night and you're absolutely wrecked the next day. The, uh, the Friday where work goes absolutely terrible and uh, everything seems hopeless. The Saturday where you wanted a day of rest but everyone starts calling you and asking you to do stuff for them. Do you get what I'm saying? Like The faith continues to happen in the moment by moment. And so Mark makes a really particular point here. The more exciting the group experience, whether in its free expression, its sacramental mystery or corporate oneness, the more carefully do we need to ensure that our understanding is keeping track of our public activity and our spiritual growth matching up the group with the group life. 
We need the experience of both social faith and personal growth. And it's often the latter which is neglected. It's pretty easy to turn up on a Sunday and to blend in and to demonstrate your faith in Jesus and get pretty excited about it. But then to even go home the Sunday afternoon and you go, okay, back to reality. What happens with faith then? What happens with the connectedness to Jesus as you walk out of this church on a Sunday and into the everyday life for the rest of the week? And my suggestion is it, uh, it doesn't change in the sense that it's consistent, all right? The circumstance and the surroundings change, uh, but the faith doesn't change. The connectedness to Jesus doesn't change. <clears throat> the temptation for these people um, was that they came and they celebrated. Um, some would say that just because of the festivities, they were crying out, Hosanna! Because apparently in the time... Uh, during the, the week of the Passover and the Festival of Tabernacles, it was like everyone was just shouting all the time, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest! Because it was a way to honour God and to say, come save us, God. We still need to be saved. You saved us in Egypt, we still need to be saved today. And it was a recognition of that. So some would say that uh, even these people crying this out to Jesus then didn't know fully who he was and were just sort of getting caught up in the emotion of it all, getting caught up in the excitement. And so be it, because Jesus is worth that, right? But then they left, and it was all quiet. And it seemed to happen in Mark really quickly. It came to the evening, and it was all done and dusted. There's no excitement anymore. You know the down feeling you get? It's like you've been at a concert, or you've been at some amazing thing. Everybody's in the moment, so awesome. Then you drive home, and you're like, ah, I wish that would last. (laughs) It just isn't lasting. But faith that lasts recognizes that there's going to be serious mountaintop high experiences and then the faith that exists in every day. So my question is this. Why do you need saving? If someone were to come to you today and they were to ask, I don't know about Jesus. Jesus is not my savior. Why, Why do I need saving? Why do you need saving? What makes you say you need a saviour? Like, why is that even necessary? And the reason I ask it isn't because I don't think uh, God has saved you. It's, I don't, I'm not asking you to question your salvation. I'm asking you to question because sometimes faith ends up getting in this position where it's like, I don't need saving really. Like, I don't need a saviour. I've got everything covered that I need covered. I've got my plans through the end of the year. I've got my pantry stocked up full. I've got fuel full in the car. I've got money in the bank account. It's almost like you're in a position where everything is just pretty secure and comfortable around you. You don't really need saving. And, uh, and if you follow the track that Jesus is not just the saviour of a nation, that he's not just the saviour of a people back then, but the saviour right now, and the continuing saviour of every person day after day after day, uh, you know that there's uh, probably areas where you do need saving. Maybe that you're trying to squash away. Maybe that you're trying to, uh, that you're trying to hide away. Um, or escape from here's 10 possible reasons people need saving and it's not exhaustive um, but it's a start right and my hope is that you'll get to a point uh, of going yeah this this savior he is as truly awesome as he is and a i want to get loud about him i actually want to really honor and praise him but b i want to recognize that i still need him number one want grows and grows 
and grows. Magazines feed that want until it becomes an insatiable desire to have what everyone else has. Need becomes lost because want rules, but each time want is fulfilled, its antennae are looking out for more. Want only creates greater and greater discontent. That's an unhappy life, right? Always wanting, always, never, it's, it's like it's insatiable, it's, it's never enough when you feed the want. Number two, the name of God is trodden on, squashed out, abused, misused and misrepresented. Maybe it's just not even used at all. Number three, love for things and people grow apart from God. Sacrifice and compromise for all the wrong things and for all the wrong reasons because people and or things have become the most dominant and primary motivation in life. All the while knowing that there's a longing that's still never satisfied. Love for self grows and with it a love that says, I have the potential and I have what it takes to make my life complete, to make my life harmonious. You hear people talking about, I'm just trying to get the right balance in my life and they're trying every other way except God, you're actually God and I'm going to worship you. The old adage is true for you. No rest for the wicked. Someone uh, who uses this quite often around me as a joke, uh, but I sometimes say, you know what? There's nothing more true. (laughs) There's no rest for the wicked because I'm not feeling rested at all. Frantic describes your life and your inner life because you don't take time to rest. Your life never rests. Number five, worshipping God is merely an add-on, something to get done on the to-do list. If he's really acknowledged at all, once a week is all he gets at best. Number six, parents are disregarded and forgotten. Children learn to live separate, isolated and self-revolving lives which exist for their own benefit and will. Parenthood becomes disdained and unpopular. Number seven, people are slain both physically and through angry and violent outbursts of rage against one another. Hate rises and divides. War increases both personally with others and nationally. Number eight, stealing becomes easy and popular, even justified. Online movies, equipment from work, money, shoplifting. Number nine, marriages become frail and broken because of lust and unfaithfulness outside the marriage. Number 10, lying about others for selfish gain increases so that self is protected. Litigation grows ever popular for self-preservation and advancement. Does anyone need saving yet? Imagine each of these are trees. You've got ten trees and on those trees are hanging all this fruit. The fruit of disharmony, the fruit of shame, the fruit of guilt, fear, self-disgust, pride, arrogance, corruption, wars, busyness that forgets people and forgets God. Avoidance, living in darkness and shadows, knowing that light could expose too great a risk of failure. Folly, rebellion, hate, restlessness, hiding. Is there a twinge of truth in any of this? You need saving. In the deepest recesses of your inside, there's a saviour who knows it, and he's ready to save. Would you get at least a little excited if there was someone who promised to come and save in the midst of your mess, in the midst of your strife, in the midst of the mess of sin, would you get a little excited? I wouldn't. If I actually saw him doing his work, uh, 
I'd get, I'd get seriously excited. So what's this saviour like? Here's a few ways. I'm, I'm going to go through a bunch of scriptures here that speak about Jesus as the saviour and what he comes to do. And, uh, and I hope that you start not just feeling the depth of the, uh, the, the mess over here, but then that there's a really good saviour. All right? That, uh, that he's really, he is who he says he is. <clears throat> I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When you're embroiled in lies, and when you've deceived yourself and deceived others, is there no greater security than knowing that there's someone who is true and who invites you into truth? That could be a scary thing. It would be a scary thing to start. But you know that in, in being with Jesus, there's truth and there's actually life. So you can bring out the lies. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the Prince of Peace. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the 10 points I talked about before help to point out that we've actually offended a great God. The being of the whole universe, the greatest being of the whole universe. He's offended by our sin. But then he says there's a saviour who actually comes to bring peace in that relationship. The most important, the most valuable relationship that exists in all of human history is the relationship between man and his God. And God says, I want you to come and I want, I want to have peace with you again. And it's going to come through this one man, Jesus Christ. John 8 verse 12 says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light. Sorry, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isn't that wonderful news when you're hidden in the darkness of your shame? Isn't that wonderful news when you're hidden in the, uh, in the, the shame and the hiding that goes on uh, because of your own sin, because of the guilt of your sin? That's wonderful news when you can actually come out into the light and that there's someone in the light with you. You don't just get in the middle, imagine you're in the middle of a stadium, all the lights, boom, they're right on you, and you're exposed for everyone to see. Now Jesus said, I'm going to be out there, and I can see all your exposure, I can see all the mess, and I'm with you in it. Isn't that a good saviour? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I will be with you always. Matthew twenty-eight twenty says this. The Saviour says this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He's with you. This Saviour doesn't just come rescue and leave. He's not just the rescue helicopter uh, from the Coast Guard. He's the Saviour who rescues and then goes through the rest of your life with you. I'm with you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Maybe you are the person who is frantic. Your life just exists in craziness. Day just runs into day after day after day after day. There's just monotonous, unchanging craziness. And in none of it do you find rest. This Savior says, come on, come here. Come and give me your burdens. 
take my yoke upon you and I'm actually going to give you rest. Come and learn from me. This Saviour did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come just to read out a whole bunch of things that were wrong. He came to bring life. He came that the world would be saved through him. So I wonder today, uh, as you head out of, uh, head out of this room, uh, my hope is that your faith will be built because we get together in the incredible high times of uh, social faith that, uh, that's really important. This is a part of how God made his church. But that your faith would continue to last into the week. I wonder, that cry, Hosanna, um, if you've ever looked up the definition of Hosanna, it says, save now, or save, I pray thee. And so you almost get to the point where throughout the week, you're, you're saying that without saying it. You get into a spot of trouble, or you're in a spot of difficulty, and you go, man, I've got to save myself. I've got to work out what I need to do here. And that's not wrong. Ingenuity is not wrong. But maybe the Savior actually wants to speak to you first. Because he's the saviour in those little messes as well as the big mess. And so I wonder instead of uh, turning I wonder instead of turning to that first person for wisdom that you always go to, instead you actually turn to Jesus and say, Hosanna, come and save. I wonder if in the in the mess that you end up being in, um, instead of going first to the fridge and getting food to somehow just bring a bit of comfort, you go, Hosanna. Come safe. I wonder when you're tempted to, uh, to do what's wrong, when your conscience is pricked and you go, no, I shouldn't do that, you actually say, Hosanna, come safe. And the Saviour is listening because he's with you. And if you don't know the Saviour today, my, my hope is that you would see how stinking amazing this Saviour is and you'd come and know him. And your cry would be, Hosanna, I need saving. 